Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, on a rather uh, windy day in San Francisco, April the 11th, 2022, we live in very strange times, I think. Um, uh, it was an interesting piece in the FT a couple of days ago by Dan Brooks, who's actually coming onto the show later this week. He had an op-ed about how social media has fully, what at least the FT calls, weaponized, it's not a word I particularly care for, weaponized morality. Dan argues that um, uh, what's changed and then a whole generation of college-educated people has learned how to frame basically anything in moral terms, whether it's their Cheetos marketing strategy or migrant labor or their date not responding to text messages. We do indeed, as Dan suggested, we seem obsessed with morality, our own particular kind of morality. There was an op-ed in the New York Times today about uh, a football lover saying that football, American football, asked her to make moral compromises and that may or may not be a bad thing. And yet we're increasingly obsessed with morality and we live in an age where we don't trust anyone or anything. We had the business writer Stephen M. R. Kobe on the show recently, new book out, Trust and Inspire, How Truly Great Leaders Unleash Greatness in Others Through Trust. So where are we going to get trust from in this new age where we are hypersensitive about morality in our hyper-moralized age. For some, we're certainly not going to get it from technology. We had the CBS tech reporter Jacob Ward on the show recently talking about how AI, artificial intelligence, is actually a threat to humanity. He has a new book out, The Loop, how technology is creating a world without choices and how to fight back. So for tech skeptics like Ward, uh, technology is the problem rather than the fix to our uh, scarcity of trust. Others wouldn't agree, though. My guest on the show today, Bina Aminar, has a new book out, AI Trustworthy. And I think she's going to take the opposite point of view in terms of building or rebuilding morality in the 2020s through artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, Bina, is, uh, Bina is joining us from Pleasanton on the East Bay, just over the bay from where I am in San Francisco. Bina, welcome. Um, before we get to Trustworthy, do you agree with um, Dan Brooks's premise that social media has weaponized morality that we live in an age where we're all obsessed with our own particular morality or is this something that's been constant throughout history i think it has been constant throughout history but social media has definitely provided a way to amplify it to take it out to the world to scale it uh, I, I don't think it's a new phenomenon in terms of morality. I, I think it's a new phenomenon in terms of, you know, being able to scale it to a level which was just impossible before social media. Why are we so obsessed with our own personal morality and the morality of others? It, 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 can we live as humans without morality? 
I think we've always, as humans, have always been obsessed with our own morality. It's one of those, you know, personal beliefs, our own ethical guidelines. It has been, you know, what makes us humans, right? As as humans, we have our own morality and we believe in it. It forms our a, a core principle of how we live life. So the personal morality has always existed. It's be it's a feature of humans and with uh, with technology it's kind of being pushed into everybody's face so if morality is created by humans it's our unique contribution to the universe the thing <laughs> that distinguishes us from other creatures and from science itself um ai is science isn't it um h- how can ai and your your book is called trustworthy uh, AI trustworthy, a business guide for navigating trust and ethics in AI. In our age of AI, how can artificial intelligence be ethical? Yeah, that, that, you know that's a great, and I like the framing you did there, Andrew. And you know, I think well, you know the 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 big uh, the big idea behind the book is to really you know move beyond that that personal morality or personal ethics make it at the organizational level, right? Every organization, whether it's for, you know, it's a nonprofit or a for-profit business has a mission statement, the reason they exist. So how do you make sure, you know, you're tapping into that ethics at an organizational level? Because I believe it's impossible for all of us to align and agree to ethical principles at a personal level. But when you work for an organization, when you create an organization, there is a common mission you always, you know, group to, you always come around to, right? So how can you make the trustworthiness, the principles at an organizational level? And that's why it's very targeted for organizations, for businesses. It's not trying to solve trustworthy AI at a personal level, at an individual level. It is really focused on how can businesses build out their own ethics principles and make sure all their employees are aligned with it. Bina, before we get on to the details of your book and how organizations can indeed build morality, perhaps you might define for us what you mean by AI, by artificial intelligence. It's one of these words that everybody, one of these terms that everybody now uses all the time. And many people, I don't think, really understand what they're what they mean when they use it. You've obviously written a book about it. You, Your day yeah. job, you run the uh, AI Institute uh, at a big consulting group. So you live with this day and night. Yes. And, you know, I think uh, if you if you search for AI, there are so many definitions and descriptions. So that's a great starting point. And I, I like to think it in the most simplest terms as a, as a way to automate uh automate tasks uh, that require human intelligence and automated either you know through computers or machines you know artif- by artificial means so it is about automating human intelligence required tasks by a machine or by software by computers that's that's my definition of ai in the at the most basic level uh, Bina, more and more historians of computer science and people who yeah. are observing the world today, whether they're tech skeptics or, or, or tech believers, 
agree that we live in an age of AI. If there's one generalization we can make about our networked age, is it's the age of AI. Do you think, or we, it's becoming the age of AI? Every big tech company is essentially an AI company. Would you agree with that? Is AI, um, is AI the concept which makes sense of our current technological world? AI is certainly a tool in our toolkit that is powering a lot of organizations and a lot of you know how we live and what we do. So I would say we are certainly in the age of AI and it is not just big tech companies, Andrew, it is every company has AI, whether they create it or not, they are using AI tools. So the big tech companies might be driving the, you know, and creating the AI tools and technologies, but there are other large companies consuming those tools. So every company, as it becomes a tech company, is also becoming an AI company. So we are definitely in the age of AI. Uh, we've done a lot of shows, Bima, uh, Bima about, um, about AI. Um, we had, for example, recently um, Jeanette Winterton, uh, Winterson, a British feminist writer, and she has a new book out, 12 Bytes, How We Got Here, Where We Might Go Next. She's a big fan of the founder, the 19th century founder of software, perhaps the inventor indeed of AI, Ada Lovelace. Um, uh, and, and, and when Winterson was on the show, she believes in our age of AI. You quote Lovelace in your book um, yeah. on the role of language. You say... Uh, well, you're, using, you're, you're borrowing some words from Lovelace. Mathematical science shows what is. It is the language of the unseen relations between things. But to use and apply that language, we must be fully, when we must be able fully to appreciate, to feel, to seize the unseen, the unconscious. Imagination too shows what is. The is and that is beyond the senses. Can AI get beyond us does ai have a soul theoretically or is it always essentially just as 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 ada lovelace predicted is it essentially just an extension of ourselves i think it enables the best way to think about it is it enables us to do things which we alone with our human power could not do just individually meaning and I know, you know, that there's a lot of scenarios around AI taking over the world and, you know, those worst case scenarios. But I'm talking about a world where, you know, uh, you know, being able to scan through millions of MRI images to find a similar diagnosis for a patient that you're working with currently, right? A, a human brain just can, it's impossible for a single human to do that. But AI can do it at a speed that can actually emit make that doctor-patient interaction better. So think of AI as a tool that's empowering us, that's enabling us to do things which we would not have been able to do ourselves. What would you say, um, Bina, to critics like Jacob Ward, the author of The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back, who fears that AI is taking away our agency. It knows too much about us. Of course, you're right that AI can be used to solve all sorts of problems. Yeah. But put it in the wrong hands. Put it in 
the yeah. hands of a uh, somebody who is intent on evil, and they can use it for c- catastrophic purposes. So, yeah. What does that suggest to us about our age of AI? Do we need to be particularly careful about who is in actually charge of technology of these new powerful systems? Uh, we do, we do. Let me take a, t- a step back, and I know you, you know, from your questions that you are a fan of history as well, and I, I, I love history. If I wasn't a computer scientist, I would have been a historian. And, you know, I'd like to give the example of uh, when the first car engine was created, right? Uh, Before that, people were riding horses or walking. uh, And, you know, when the first, you know, we're in this era where that engine has been created, just the first version of it, and it's still in the lab and it's still being tinkered on, it's still being developed. But we've taken, you know, that first version of that car engine, put a wrapped a body around it, made it into a car, and it's enabling us for, to go from point A to point B faster, right? Because even with that not fully developed, not fully tested engine, we are able to get value from it in the real world. But you know, the, the, and this is that second stream, so to speak. If the first stream is research, the second is the application. Uh, of AI, and then the, the but this this car still doesn't have seat belts. The s- speed limits have not been defined on the roads because the roads are not yet created to drive these cars. They're still running, uh, drive, being driven on dirt roads. So we are living in this interesting phase, Andrew, where you know everything is in flux and there are things moving at different speeds. The technology itself is still maturing. There are still new algorithms being developed, new the foundational core technology that's coming in the AI space, but we're using it in the real world across industries, right? Not just big tech, but in finance, banks, and with hospitals and healthcare, in factories and manufacturing plants, we're using it in the real world. But we haven't necessarily defined, here are the speed limits, here are the seat belts you need to put in. So there is, you know, there are risks, there are the impacts that have not yet been fully identified. And obviously they've not all been taken care of. So we're living in this transitional phase and this is the opportunity for our generation to define that third stream, to put those seed belts in place, put the speed limits, right? So I think, you know, uh, the, 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 the loop is, is spot on. It is raising awareness because that gives us then that momentum to define that third stream. Third, third stream of regulations, policies, ethical impacts, best practices. Those don't exist today, right? But, well, but, but, it, but being a, you're very kind about historians, but historians will always remind us that we always live throughout history in transitional ages because everything is always changing forever. That's just yeah. the nature of things. History never ends, whatever some people might think. So you use the example of the invention of the car. Had we gone back 100 years and had 2020 ability to see what happened, maybe we would or wouldn't have banned the car given the environmental consequences, the changes. Mm-hmm. These things are incredibly complicated in a moral sense. In one of the chapters in your book, you quote um, something from Steve, something that's often been quoted from Steve Jobs' um very famous 2005 Stanford commencement address where he says, um, 
Right now, the new is you, but someday, not too long from now, you will be gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it is quite true. And of course, that's particularly true today in terms of AI. We are all being cleared away, you and I and everyone watching this. AI will replace our labor, may replace us as a species, some people say. Some people say it will be our last invention. In that context, then, how will, how can we ever be equipped to make moral judgments about the future, which we just simply don't know? We can't imagine. I mean, we can imagine, but we're generally wrong. Yes, but, you know, we, we can, and that's why we can prevent it, because that, that doomsday scenario is not here. We could be headed in that direction, but we have the capability to also slow it down or stop it, right? We have already seen certain technologies being banned in certain use cases. So I think, you know, if I had to bet, my bet is on humanity surviving, and I, I, you know, I, I know we, you know, there have been other technological advances as well. And there, this is like any other where we still have the power. So it is up to us to make sure that doesn't happen. And it's not going to be just one person. It is that collective us that needs to come together to actually make sure that doesn't happen. I'm not sure whether that collective us is going to come together because there aren't any global organizations. You suggest it comes together in corporations, which might chill some people, might encourage others. We're talking with Bina Amanath, the author of a very interesting new book, Trustworthy AI, about a business guide for navigating trust and ethics in AI, in our age of AI. And take a short break now, Bina. And then after the break, I want to talk about some specific applications of AI, which I think in the book and in your life, your working life, you think can be very helpful in terms of bringing more morality and ethics um, into the world. So we'll take a 60-second break, and then we'll be back with Bina Amanath, the author of Trustworthy AI. Don't go away, anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So 
whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keynote. We are back with Bina Amanath, the author of Trustworthy AI. Um, she works uh, in Silicon Valley. She's one of the world's leading authorities on ethics and AI. Uh, Bina, you're also the founder, I think, of Humans for AI. And one of the purposes of this, uh, at least the website suggests, is one million diverse humans in AI by 2025. The uh, Humans for AI uh, remind us that... Um, we need more diversity, and, and you remind us on your website that uh, only uh, 18% of AI authors at conferences are women, 5% of the AI workforce are women. Do you think that AI can be an effective agent in terms of creating more justice in the workplace and in society when it comes to diversity? I, I think more than any technology, AI's own survival, growth, and potential is dependent on diversity. Uh, and the reason I say that is uh, because AI is so closely tied to our intelligence and uh, you know the, the, the biases that could creep in if we don't have diversity in the teams that are building AI or using AI, uh, is going to limit AI's own robustness. So for AI's own success, diversity is important in the in its own teams. Now AI obviously has inherited, uh, you know, what has always been a tech problem: the lack of diversity in tech. But I think AI is one of those technologies uh, that can attract more diversity. And uh, the reason being that, unlike say a traditional software product where you know, from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you needed to know coding, right? You needed to have some level of engineering or technical background. But AI is, as it needs that deep domain expertise, it needs, uh, you know, subject matter expertise, you don't necessarily need to know coding to be part of AI teams. You can be the product manager, the designer, the, the tester. So because of AI's dependency on domain knowledge, I think we can attract talent that doesn't necessarily uh, you know, want to know coding or learn coding, unlike other software or other tech industries. So I think with AI, there, we have a huge opportunity to bring AI uh, diversity in, not only for AI, but you know, solve the lack of diversity in tech problem that we've been struggling with for decades. Uh, Bina, I'm not sure everyone would necessarily agree. I'd be curious as to what Ada Lovelace, for example, would think of this. She lived in the middle of the 19th century, mm -hmm. an age where there was very little interest in notions of diversity and gender mm -hmm. imbalance and all the rest of it. Um, we live in an age now where we assume that that is the thing that seems to define us more than anything else. And you're suggesting that we pour ourselves into our tech so that AI reflects our values. I think I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing. But isn't there more to us than just our our gender, our ethnicity, our race? And that if we focus on this diversity in AI today in the 2020s, in a hundred years' time, this m might be utterly foreign to the people who follow us, the cultures that follow us. Uh, 
True. If we fix the problem, they they may find it ridiculous that this was a problem to start with. Why, why are there fewer women or fewer people of color in tech or in AI? So uh, I I agree with you that it might it might you know be make no sense you know three generations down if we fix it. Otherwise, we'll just continue to struggle with the challenges we've had so far. You think these things can be fixed? That finally, does it? Yeah, it's a very utilitarian view of the world, which of course reflects the particular kind of take on AI as a, as a, as a, a vehicle of utility. It, it, it you know it it is impossible to achieve. 100% diversity goals in every AI project because you are looking at, like you said, it's not just about gender, race, or ethnicity. Those tend to be the big buckets, but you know, you need that cultural diversity, geographic diversity, the, the subject matter expertise diversity, the educational diversity. There are so many different dimensions of diversity, so it will be almost impossible to get all those dimensions, so we focus on the larger buckets and try to fix it. Bina, we've done a lot of shows on um, what you might think of as the, the key the ideological divide of the 2020s, which is between, if you like, a, an ideology of diversity on the coasts, at least in America, and another world reflected perhaps in Donald Trump's Republican Party or the Le Pen Party in France, how could AI help to fix that? How can AI teach us to talk to one another across what seems to be increasingly uh, ideological chasms where we simply are not able to accept the worldview of others? Yeah, th those, those are large humanitarian problems that our generation, our world is going through right now. And I don't think it's... it's, it's, it's not really a technology problem to fix, but I think technology can also help. And I, I'm thinking out loud here, but uh, you know, it could be as simple as being able to connect uh, different different opinionated peoples, creating a forum where you can have a conversation where AI can almost play that translator. But I don't, uh, you know, at a fundamental level, it's not a technology that it's not a problem that can be fixed by a technology. It, it, it has to, uh, you know, technology might be able to play a role, but it is much more deeper than that. You seem to be tiptoeing, um, uh, being into thinking that technology might be able to think for itself. Uh, you quote a number of very influential computer scientists in the book. One of them was John McCarthy. Uh, who, interestingly enough, won a Turing Award, Alan Turing, of course, being the British founder, essentially, of computer science after Ada Lovelace, who, 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 who thought very hard about whether or not um, algorithms could think for themselves. Yeah. Um, McCarthy, and you quote him in, in your book, it's difficult to be rigorous about whether a machine really knows, thinks, etc., because we're hard put to define these things. We understand human mental processes only slightly better than a fish understands swimming. Perhaps you might explain that and why it's so significant in terms of making sense of AI and trying to figure out how 
um, AI can think for itself or adapt its own language? In, in my experience, working at different, uh, different industries, working in different companies, what, what I have seen AI being more as utilitarian. It is used to fix supply chain issues, optimize supply chain, you know, keep, uh, keep uh, machines running up uh, fast, uh, you know, on a continuous basis, predict downtime and prevent, uh, prevent downtime, uh, predict uh, employee attrition and address it. So, you know, I have seen very specific uses of AI. Of course, you know, there, there are, you know, technology, you can, you can, uh, you know, imagine it to uh, to the dream state or the nightmare state, and both scenarios are possible. But it, the way AI is being used today by most companies is 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 in a very narrow uh, focus, right? And uh, when we because of the word intelligence being encoded, you know, I think that fear naturally comes in is because how do you even define intelligence? That word, because that because of that word, I think we are thinking of a a science problem which which is boundaryless because intelligence is boundaryless. Whereas I think the work that's really happening with AI today does have its boundaries. It is not boundaryless. It, it certainly does have its boundaries. To remind us of that, you quote another great American uh, computer scientist, Donald Knuth who famously said, uh, science is what we understand well enough to explain to a computer. Art is everything else. Um, Given that, as you suggested, there are limits to algorithms, to AI, and perhaps to to borrow some language from Knuth, art is everything else. What advances really is artificial intelligence going to make if it's not really able to make sense or replicate art? And creativity, does it will will our age of artificial intelligence simply underline the value, the importance, the scarcity of creative thinking? That is a possible scenario. That, uh, but you know, going back to your earlier point, it all depends on you know who who uses it, how that tool is used. The same technology that's used for something good can also be used for something bad. And I'll give an example to make it more real, right? Facial recognition. We hear a lot about that. Now, the technology itself is science, right? Being able to uh, identify and recognize faces. And now using facial recognition for law enforcement, for tagging somebody as criminal. Now, if that technology is not fully vetted and is biased, it's a terrible scenario because you know, innocent people are going to be tagged as criminals. So that's that's a terrible scenario. But that exact same technology, Agro, facial recognition, can be used to identify human trafficking victims or kidnapping victims. Now, it may still be biased, but the question we need to ask ourselves, that organization needs to ask is, is it still helping rescue uh, more human trafficking victims than we could just with human sight or with human abilities. Having a facial recognition algorithm at traffic lights, which is able to recognize these victims and help with rescue, 
Yes, it might be biased and it might be recognizing only 50% of the victims, but if it is 50% more than humans could do with, without AI, then is that something we should use or not use? And that's, that's, you know, that's the nuance that you need to get into to be able to solve for it, because it's, it is really about how you're using that technology. Do you think that we need the first trustworthy mover behind AI, a, a blockchain-like technology, t- to to make sure that we can really trust governments or corporate organizations or international organizations? I do think that we are going to see more movement on that. I do think just like we have financial auditing, right? Uh, where if a company claims certain numbers, there is an independent entity that audits for it. I think there, you know, we are definitely in the midst of a movement where we are going to see some level of trustworthy AI auditing uh, mm. so that companies are held accountable when they, you know, when they say their algorithms are fair or unbiased, there needs to be some oversight to make sure that that's really happening. There needs to be metrics set it needs to be some kind of parameter set and it needs to be audited. So I think we are going to see more of that coming in the next few years. And, you know, that puts some level of control on, you know, making sure that it, it's going in the right direction. Bina, you're clearly an optimist and I think that's extremely healthy. We need to have a good balance between optimists and pessimists on the future of technology and AI, but what do you most worry about? What keeps you awake at night on the AI front? How can it go wrong? Yeah, you know, look, I'm a technologist by training. I uh, I love technology. I, uh, you know, I believe technology can make all our lives better. And I, you know, look, I've lived in the time when I studied AI and there was no way for us to make it real. And in my own lifetime, it's becoming real, right? Things we could only imagine. So I do, you know, I'm a huge optimist, but at the same time, I also worry about the way it could go wrong. What, you know, we cannot all be just focused on the ROI, the value creation, the positive things that AI can do. We we need to also think about the ways it could go wrong. And you didn't use this quote, Andrew, but, you know, I have a quote in there from Jurassic Park. And that's the thing, that's the one that worries me the most. Just because your scientists could, they did, with, you know, I'm paraphrasing, they did without thinking about it. And I think with this amazing technology, there is amazing things that can happen, but we have to put that mindfulness, that thoughtfulness, that pause, pause, think. Should we be doing this? Should we be even building this thing without putting those guardrails in place? I think, you know, that's my biggest worry that we're not being mindful before unleashing these tools out into the world and then say, oh, good actors will use it for good, bad will be used for bad, and it's their problem. It cannot be that. I want, you know, my biggest worry is we don't have enough people, you know, being mindful of the technology that's being unleashed to the world. Well, for that mindfulness, uh, people need to read uh, Bina Amanath's new book, Trustworthy AI, A Business Guide for Navigating Trust and Ethics in AI. It's an important new book and a very balanced, thoughtful uh, a thoughtful interpretation of our AI age. Congratulations, uh, Bina, on the new book. 
What else should people be reading uh, on uh, April the 11th, 2022, Bina? It's, it's an old, uh, you know, it's been around for a while, but a book that I go back to often is, uh, you know, more from a leadership perspective is uh, Hit Refresh by Satya Nadella. Uh, you know, and uh, I also like to read books. Who on... uh, is Microsoft? This is the Microsoft. Uh, yes. CEO. Yes. And... Uh, actually, uh, Stephen Covey is a big fan of him as well. Awesome. Yeah, he he is. He's an amazing leader. We should trust him. <laughs> I would trust him after reading his book. I think he is one of the best leaders. So, uh, and the other, uh, you know, it, it's it's a whole genre of books, but I love reading fiction, especially the ones with killer robots, because then that tells me, you know, the worst case scenario and makes me think about, okay, how could this have been prevented? So that, uh, so because our imagination is always pointing us in different directions. We need to be able to look at fiction because fiction is ahead of reality. That certainly is the case, um, although some nonfiction writers like Bina Amanath seem to be ahead of reality too. Uh, Bina, finally, uh, who's in charge on April the 11th, 2022? Uh, who run, who's running the world today? You are. You, you and I and, you know, it's people like us who are raising awareness ab about AI and providing a balanced view and uh, trying to make sure that we are not heading towards a nightmare AI, but more of a, a positive AI. I think, you know, I think it, it's all of us, you know, uh, out there talking about it, raising awareness, making sure that everybody can be part of the AI journey. Well, there you have it. And if you really want to trust people like Mina, Abina, Amanath, and myself, you need to wear yellow. <laughs>